In the Thick of It, a Profit and Loss podcast with Colin Lambert and Galen Stobbs. Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Loss's weekly podcast with myself, Colin Lambert, Managing Editor and Editor Galen Stops. I have to let your listeners know I'm probably in a vulnerable state. I've literally just got off a plane that's taken 24 hours to get me back to Australia, first time back in six weeks. So I feel it for all you travellers out there. Um, And I thought, actually, before we get into the sort of business end of it, Galen, um, you'll remember last year that I was absolutely superb at um, tipping the World Cup winners. I do remember remember that. You you got us all the way to the semi-finals with your predictions, Colin. I did, actually, yeah, by managing to predict everyone but. (laughs) Um, Well, you'll be pleased to hear I was at it again this week because um, I'm sure there aren't many people in the world that aren't aware of it, but there was two rather dramatic Champions League semi-finals this week. And at our Frankfurt conference on uh, Tuesday, I was talking to two Liverpool fans, and one of them was bemoaning the fact that he was flying home that night. And I went, well, I don't know why you're worrying because you're going to get stuffed anyway. And, of course, (laughs) they won. And then I was talking to a Tottenham fan the following uh, morning, and I went, are you going to watch it tonight? And he went, oh, yeah. And I went, why? You're going to get stuffed. (laughs) And, of course, so the record, the tipping record stands proud, I have to say. Um, And for any Spurs fans out there, you're probably lucky, because I'm not don't care about either of them that much but um, for, you probably be, would have hated to be in my position I was on the tarmac listening to the game on the radio and had to put it onto flight mode at 94 minutes and the goal was the winning goal was scored at 95 so yeah um, that <laughs> so I went all the way to Singapore thinking oh I missed extra time anyway beyond my excellent tipping abilities um, looking at things this week and actually I guess we can roll tipping into that as well can't we because we could probably start off with um, a rather a rather optimistic and buoyant and, may I say, um, Saki tweet that I saw from you this week, Galen, around um, CTA volumes. Uh, yeah. Well, um, firstly, if we're talking about tweets, before you answer that, um, if you're interested, there's a, there's a whole lengthy debacle on Twitter on your feed, Colin. I felt like I was there the whole journey home with you. Someone, <laughs> oh, yes. Someone had... To, Someone had the audacity not to check your bag all the way through for you? My goodness, how did you survive? <laughs> Do you know what, though? I've got to say, I was sitting there going like, so I'm in Frankfurt Airport, and I'm going, like, I'm going to Sydney tonight, and it's all one world. Can you check me through? No. I mean, what do you mean, no? It's a different booking. Well, sorry, it's the same name and frequent flyer number, surely. No. So I had to drag off at Terminal 5, go through immigration, get my case, Get the train oh, over to Terminal 3, awful. go through check-in again. Check-in wasn't open, so I'd just sit there for an hour. It's like, seriously, I mean, these people just don't know. I mean, on a, on a serious note, British Airways... No justice, in the, no justice in the world, is there, Colin? <laughs> no, no, on a serious note, British Airways, um, you get a lot of business people have to change their plans and add extra little flights on around the world. If you're going to make them get off and schlock around airports trying to get bags from one terminal to another, you're going to lose customers because that's not what a busy businessman wants. And I'm a busy well, businessman. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll be, you'll be pleased to hear that, that British Airways got their comeuppance when uh, Colin wrote his own snarky comments on Twitter and put it out in the world. So I bet they're, I bet they're smarting from that one, Colin. Yeah. Already there's panic at the higher headquarters of whatever it is that owns British Airways. I can't think what the company is now, but there you go. Anyway, you're avoiding, you're, we're avoiding the subject of your um, goading of me on Twitter. Over the yeah, fact that CTAs, 
managed to do a second month in the positive. Wow, well done. <laughs> well, no, well, it wasn't just the CTAs managed to do a second month in the positive. Firstly, I just just feeling a little good because I've already done uh, one on one of my predictions as we discussed. Yes, my 2019 predictions last week, and I've got. It's, I know it's early days, but I've got a good feeling about this. So, so that one reason I was happy is because I'm I'm an I'm another month closer to that prediction being correct. More importantly, it wasn't just the CTAs did well. It's that trend following has is year to day up 7.16% on the Society General Trend Index. And it was it was mere months ago, Colin, when you were assuring us all that trend following was dead as a strategy. Yep. Sometimes right, are you, are you sometimes still- wrong, always certain. Yeah, are you still are you still sticking to your guns on that one? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, actually, I mean, on a serious note, I mean, it's it's good to see the trend followers doing well because you know you, you don't want people to be performing badly. Um, I still think there's there is a challenge for the trend follower in the fact that yeah we live in sort of mean reverting times and the machines are kind of taking over. And I think there's also the problem that. You know, with the market, a lot of time trend followers, they like the trend to develop. And I still have concerns that they don't develop in modern foreign exchange markets in particular and probably in several other markets because, you know, we're pricing at X, an event happens or a new input to the price comes, and within 20 milliseconds we're, we're, try, we're pricing at Y. And that, that could be 50, 60 points away, you know, which is a reasonable amount. Um, and there's no price points in between. So... The, you, can you call it a trend? It's just a price adjustment, and and there's no opportunity for anyone to really jump on that sort of trend. He says. Um, so I, I, I don't well, can think you call I, it a trend? That, that's the whole that's the whole skill of trend following, yeah. right, isn't it? Is is you know I, I hear people like someone commented on one of the things about them being cheap, um, but I mean it's a little bit more nuanced than that, right? Because it is that, that's always Absolutely. the question, right? What 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 what, how do you define a trend? What signals did it started, and what signals has it ended? That's the the difference between you know profit and loss, between winning and losing, between making money or not. Yeah, I mean, but as we said, I mean, probably a couple of months ago when we were discussing this, when I was obviously goading you as heavily as you're goading me at the moment. Um, I think the we I think we agreed back then. There's a need. There was a need for the trend followers to maybe nuance how they look at things. And yeah. maybe um, act a little quicker, you know. So you know, be quicker into the trade. Because um, I mean, this kind of links in. There's, it's, there's an interesting dynamic in the markets at the moment. Because um, while you're busy celebrating your um, apparent uh, victory four months into the year on trend following as well, but I don't um, think it's apparent victory. I'm saying I'm edging. I'm, I'm in the right direction. I'm, um, you know, well, I'm, mate, you could I'm, be in a I'm, worse direction. <laughs> I'm 2 nil up at half time. Let's put it that way. What could possibly go wrong, Colin? Exactly, yeah. And for all you, all you IX fans out there, we can only apologize for, for rubbing salt into your wound. Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing, though, one of the other predictions you made actually was around um, volumes going higher. Yeah. And yeah. obviously, April was the month that the BIS took their survey. Oh, sorry, all the central banks took their survey, and the platform numbers were pretty horrible. Um, yeah. I mean, Refinitiv had the lowest ADV in spots since it started reporting as Thomson Reuters in 2009. I think 
EBS had a December that was worse than August 2016, which was a pretty horror month. They were the only two that were lower for EBS. CME was the lowest since August 2016. Um, so, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a great month, you would say. The only thing, I do have some good news for you, though. Um, I went back and checked on the same, on the, the five platforms that were reporting back in 2016. And uh, the actual volumes, I think, were like 5 billion more in last month than they were back then. Um, you've obviously got other platforms coming to the scene as well. You may, you may be alive on the volumes will go up. I think you're horribly optimistic on 5.8 to 6 1 trillion, 6 .1 trillion. I know. Right? I know. Which sucks, but, but you never know. They could mean, be. Yeah. But last, last month was an anomaly. So I think while I might technically end up being wrong in that, sure. I think we'll Sorry. agree at the end of the year that in spirit, in the spirit of prediction, I was correct. Oh, yeah. We'll be agreeing absolutely nothing of the sort like that. <laughs> <laughs> because if you, I mean, if you look at it, January was busy, February was pretty horrible, March was good, April was pretty horrible. Um, volumes are up and down like a yo-yo. And then, so to wrap that back to the CTA piece, actually, which I think is quite interesting at the moment. So I've just done the London and Frankfurt conferences. I've just been in Europe for six weeks, talking to a lot of people in the market. Generally speaking. Um, those involved in the trading business, like the banks and the platforms, miserable sin. Just saying, like it's a terrible month. Um, I was talking to someone uh, yesterday or Wednesday, sorry, whatever it was. I was uh, talking to them, and they said, actually, it gave them some heart at our conference to hear other people say, no, no, it's pretty bad because they were starting to worry in case it was something they were doing wrong. Um, so you've got this situation where you know the core market is bemoaning. Lack of volatility, which we've discussed before, and lack of volume. And yet, all of a sudden, the CTAs are making good money. So, and, and, that is and to your point, the, and, the trend, and the trend followers are making good money. So, clearly, there's moves there. So, on one hand, we've got everyone saying, oh, you know, this is terrible, you know, it's really, really low volume. On the other hand, very quietly, you've got a group of managers at the moment, at least. I mean, I'd say, I mean, those, the CTA returns are quite volatile at the moment as well. But they're sitting there going like, well, actually, you know, 7.7, what was it, 7.16 for the year? You were very yeah. very precise and on that, I noticed. 4.15 for, for the month. That's, that's some serious return. That is the, that is a serious turn. So if if things are so bad, how come you got clients out there or, or investors out there making seven percent this year? Yet again, I find myself wondering: Do the banks need to revisit their models? And I know the regulations play a part of this, but you look at it and go: If the banks actually had people looking to trade the markets as well as risk manage the customer flow, they could be they could their returns could be up. They could have a seven percent return on. You know, whatever their whatever their capital investment would be in the business, um, I, 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 I know that's a very simplistic way of looking at it because there's, there's a lot more cost than everything involved. But I just I, I do find it interesting that everyone's moaning that you know, the noise is from the, the moaners, and yet very quietly, you know, to my distress at the moment, only because of, not because I don't want them to do well, because it means you win another one. Um, you've got CJ's <laughs> doing really well. Um, you know, I, I suspect to go back to your earlier question about the timing on getting into positions, I suspect what they're doing, they're looking at it and they're waiting for that sort of um I mean it could even be I was speaking to uh 
a CTA type trader in London. And the change they had made was they would have a, a medium term view. They weren't trying to stress they're not trend followers, but and they would have a yeah. medium term view and they would actually wait for the market to go against their view before entering a position. It was quite an interesting concept. So they're sitting like, you know, for instance, you know, we want to go um, you know, long long euros or whatever. Um and the market drops about sixty, seventy percent. Uh, sorry, 60, 70 points. 60, 70 percent, that would be a good one. Um, 60, 70 points. And they'll do a quick, you know, like sanity check. Has anything important happened to change our medium-term view? And if it hasn't, that's their opportunity to go in. Because, again, they look for that mean reversion. But if they can take advantage of, of that and, and pick up half the mean reversion, then all of a sudden, you know, they're, in, they're into a better, they're into a better state, state of mind around their position. So it could be yeah. that what you've got is you've got more of these CTAs accurately predicting the market. Um, the other thing I think you could say is also, are these markets a little bit range-bound? And if they are, then there's money to be made in range-bound markets. It's just a question of identifying the range. Yeah, if you look at cable, I, I mean, I haven't say, I haven't looked at a, a market for like 36 hours, but if you look at cable for the last six months, it's probably been a sell at one above 132 and a buy below 130. If you can do that a few dozen times, and you have had the opportunity to do that, there's money to be made. So maybe that's what the uh, what these CTAs are doing, and, and good on them. And I think rather than complain about it, some of the you know market makers and LPs could maybe look at their models and go, well, can we incorporate a bit more risk into our business? I don't know. It's uh, it's an interesting one. I mean, in the meantime, of course, we sit there and you get the upper hand for the moment. So, and I hope I sound so as think- delighted as I feel about that. So do you, do you think that all the, the non-bank market makers who all assure us they're taking so much risk had a good month then? That's hard to tell, to be honest, but my instinct is talking to sources of these firms is they don't have anything like a bad month. I think we need to make that clear. Um, that I don't think the yeah, to these a lot of these firms, uh, a bad month is you know only 70% of the norm P&L. Okay. Well, sorry, P. Um but my sense is talking to some of these firms is, yeah, volumes have been a bit lower um, because, you know, their idea of taking risk and, frankly, those of the banks. And, you know, again, this is another thing where the banks and non-bank firms have kind of, you know, converged into one. Um, their idea of taking risk is still measured largely in the seconds and maybe the minutes, whereas I think the CTAs have taken advantage of these markets by taking risk and holding positions in the hours and probably days. And okay. it's, and it's um, in a way, it's, in a way it was the way it used to be. You had the interbank market and, you know, they would sit there and trade around and, and most interbank traders would be looking for, um, <clears throat> you know, a few pips here, a few pips there. But generally speaking, the good traders were also sitting and, okay, I've got a core position on here and I think it's going to happen. I'll just trade around that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you don't know because these firms are, I mean, Virtue publish their, their numbers. They have to, but um, and I don't think Virtue are the biggest non-bank shop by far out there anymore. So it's difficult to know because there's a, a level of opaqueness around how these firms perform. Um, but my sense is they, yeah, they did okay. But I don't think they, I don't think they'll look back on April 2019 as a stellar month. Is how I'd put it. Yeah. Um, and in that case, they'll be in the same place as, as the banks. Um. And then, as you already mentioned, you've been 
traveling all over a whole bunch, especially to go to our London and Frankfurt uh, conferences. So yeah. uh, unfortunately, I couldn't be there, but perhaps still under house arrest, give us mate. Some of your yeah, still under house arrest, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but but I, I wanted to kind of hear some of your perhaps um, your kind of takeaways or your kind of interesting uh, or noteworthy kind of moments from those two events. Yeah, um, I guess away from the events because I actually spent. Um, I, I, re- I thought I hadn't done enough damage to my liver, so I spent the weekend before Frankfurt conference in Munich because nothing bad ever happens in Munich. Um, <laughs> but what was surprising to me in both Munich and Frankfurt, and I did interact with quite a lot of Germans, um, you know, a couple of parties here and dinners here and so on. Um, I could not find a German that thought Brexit would happen. Really? Which, yeah, and I'm going like, is, and I was looking at like. Is this over optimism, or is this actually, you know, the view of some of someone who's one stage removed? I mean, I I, I kind of consider myself being down here in Sydney, two stages removed, um, but they're one stage removed, obviously. But I, I still kind of thought to myself, I asked them why they thought so, and they went, oh, they'll realise, you know, the futility. They haven't got the backing of the country anymore. Um, people don't want it. I'm going like, yeah, I think there's a little bit of wishful thinking there because to my mind, having spent four or five weeks in, in the UK, I kind of look at it and think, well, I think it's just sleepwalking towards this October deadline, the way they were sleepwalking towards the March deadline. And this again will come down to a question of whether the EU is willing to kick the can further down the street. But I did find it really interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, I tend to mix with people of strong views. You'll be surprised to hear, <laughs> and, and they and they were adamant that you know this wasn't going to happen. And I was trying to put a bit of a dampener on their optimism by saying, "Well, yeah, you're kind of giving politicians um, skills and talents that maybe they don't have." Um, yeah. So that was my that was my first observation. Um, the second one actually kind of semi linked to that. We had a really really good session um, in Frankfurt. Uh, to kick us off with Ben Pott, who's the um, head of government and regulatory affairs at BMY Mellon, and um, obviously it's on the Chatham House rules, so I can't discuss what Ben was saying. But generally speaking, what was interesting was the the, the sense I got coming away from that discussion was that um, there are the regulation will not have the impact. Um, that we think it will at the moment because nobody knows anything. Brexit is actually causing a real sort of um, hiatus in the evolution of the regulatory landscape. Um, and the sense I got was, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of questions asked, and it was like, yeah, that's still up in the air kind of answers, which I thought was quite interesting because um, there were a couple of, I mean, I did tweet a couple of things out there. It was a couple of good things. One speaker uh, in a later panel said, you know, like, we've had uh, nine and a half years of this mandate, and... Oh, sorry, nine and a half years since like the, the regulatory change was was enforced, and we still don't have a trading mandate, and we still don't have a clearing mandate, and that kind of led to a whole discussion around what have we actually achieved, and I think again to that back to back to Brexit, the sense was that um, the the Brexit is another handbrake on this ev- the evolution of regulation, because people say, well, you know, what are we going to do? Honestly, I don't think it should be that big an issue. I mean, I, I mean, Why not? I, I, well, because 
we we existed with regulators. Well, let's put it this way. Uh, the EU and the US managed to agree on most of the regulations. I mean, there's a bit of to and fro in around it, but they managed to agree. Um, they don't have the same regulations. So if the UK decides to have the same regulations, is it that big an issue? A few more people have got to stamp a few more, fill in a few more forms. I think it's part of the push for full employment or something like that. But I, I kind of look at it and think, and this is something that, you know, I mean, it's, it's a different but, world but now. Isn't, and, and I'd isn't, have to isn't, isn't the whole point of Brexit to, to overthrow the... Uh... The, the yoke of the uh, Brussels government to, to get away from having yeah, these rules but I don't handed think, down to us. But I don't, think, I don't think it is in financial markets. I think it's more about governance around, you know, you know the themes they were going banging on about, you know, border security. And this is sound familiar to you being based in the U.S., you know, um, border but, but security be, and um, but, but, too much would oversight. Would it be... Would it be Will it be financial institutions and e- or even financial regulators will be setting the agendas, or will it be the politicians? I think it will be the um, regulators. I really do. Um, I think you know the FCA have already sort of got equivalence re- regimes in place with the US and the EU on so many things. They'll just add to it um, because, generally speaking, these people are not. Yeah, they're used to dealing across borders. It's, you know, they're not dealing with, you know, particularly if you ask the average person in the street in the UK if, about financial regulation and the impact of clearing an initial margin, they stare at you blankly. This is not this is not an issue for it. And I think the regulators will just carry on the way they do. The other thing I would say is that the, another sense I got from this this we had the morning was fairly um, uh, driven by regulation and its impact on the market structure, but. Yet again, my instinct was, for all, with all this confusion and with you know with Brexit adding to the confusion and, and around timings as well as what will happen, um, yet again I find myself thinking that um, Asia and probably Singapore will be the winner. And Singapore's making a move to you know shape that they get more people to co-locate in Singapore. They've they set up the SG um, data centre. Uh, I think Singapore knows this, and Singapore is is basically saying, "Okay, we're ready. To, we're ready to take on a bigger role in the world's financial markets." And whether Europe or the US will stop them or can stop them is is um, is, is open to question. So I thought that was that was quite interesting. Um, you know, the sense was that we've gone ten years, and actually, not a lot has really changed. There was also a sense, actually, from speakers that um, with the changing rules we've had, and with things like the FX Global Code and banks being much having a much heavier surveillance on their on their um, activities, there was definitely a sense that regulators or regulation has maybe hit its peak and will actually start to be rolled back. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a, more than a few people think uh, Christian Carl, the CFTC chairman, is a proponent for rolling back certain aspects. Of, of the regulation in the US, is that a sense you get over there? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but I think he's been a proponent of, of rolling back, and you know he had this whole thing about you know Kiss Initiative, keep it simple, stupid, and there were lots of plans to roll yeah. things back. I, I would say a lot of people have pointed out to me, um, or have made comments to me rather, op- made opinions known to me that they don't think he's been a terribly effective chairman frankly just just because if you look at 
And some of this might have been kind of hands tied because they didn't have a full complement <coughs> of commissioners yeah. for a while. But I mean, the fact is, when you look at, at some of of what people expected him to do, and again, perhaps expectations were too high. When you look at some of the expectations he was going to do, particularly around like SEP and swap reform, um, yeah. there hasn't been a lot that's actually happened. Did that happen on his watch, or was he just taking that over? So, 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 so he. Before, I suppose this was his was agenda, chairman, wasn't it? Before he was chairman, he published a white paper on this. They kind of laid out a lot of the changes that he wanted to make. And so, when he became chairman, lots of people expected that. Uh, that these changes would then get implemented. Um, but for yeah. a variety of reasons, including some industry pushback, etc., uh, it still hasn't happened yet. That's quite interesting because I think there was definitely, I mean, I think one speaker last week, or sorry, this week, or wherever it was, <laughs> the days are rolling into one, um, actually sort of said that um, they're not looking forward to Giancarlo stepping down. So maybe no, so you've that, got a slightly different view that, between Europe and the US. That, no, so I, I think I think um, I mean that was with regards to kind of U.S. specific regulation. I think that right. the markets markets were relieved, or people in the market were relieved when Giancarlo became chairman, because you had you know you had the Gensler years, and Gensler's um, you know agenda and mandate was was not to be post financial crisis was not to be particularly nice to financial markets, right? He yeah. was there to, to to lay down the law and change the way things were done. Um, yeah, you know, Mass had Mass had kind of trod fairly carefully and was always no no one ever quite really knew what to make of him in a lot of ways. The people I spoke to, and then you yeah. know, Giancarlo came in and it was someone who kind of understood these markets very well, had been involved in these markets before, um, and was and was expected to you know, to be a kind of a, a fairly common sense approach to things. And so I think. I think with a lot of the the approaches he's taken, and probably with, with cross border, for example, I mean it was shortly after I think he became chairman they announced a bunch of cross border uh, progress on cross border issues, um, and one suspects that was because there was a, a kind of a much more common sense approach. So that's that's probably why there was that view in Europe, and why yeah. I think a lot of people here, even though not much has actually changed, I think people here might be concerned to see him go because you know. The the alternative. There's a lot of worse alternatives out. There. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I suppose it's the same for everything, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, it's uh, we were looking. There was a big thing in the UK when they put up the when they advertised for the job of Bank of England governor. Um, and it's a pity you didn't get your green card a bit earlier, actually, because otherwise you could have applied four hundred eighty grand a year. I know it's a small pay cut for what <laughs> PNL pays you, but it's pretty good. You know, it's not bad. I think it's a kudos. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah. But you looked at the candidates there, and ev- and like the roundup was, generally speaking, yeah, okay, they're all good people, but every one of them had one concern around their ability to take on the role. Um, and it's let's face it, you know, whoever takes on the CFTC is going to be stepping into a fairly volatile political environment. I think I'm going to put that in the most delicate way I could. Um, and actually a rather interesting regulatory environment. So, yeah, it, it will be an important um, an important appointment. I guess the other thing, just to f- sort of finish off on the conferences, the other thing that really struck me was we had two panels in London and Frankfurt and FX swaps. Um, now, I'm a little bit distressed because I think every year for the last four years I predicted – more automation in FX swaps is one of my crystal ball predictions, and this year I haven't, which is 
in other words, you know what's going to happen. Um, I did get the sense that there was more appetite for automation and of FX swaps. Um, I, in London, we heard of several initiatives. I think the problem was actually there are maybe too many initiatives. You know, people are looking at, um, I guess, like FX Link at CME and going, yeah, great, you can, you can roll your risk off uh, the balance sheet into a less capital-intensive contract around fixed dates. And then you had um, SGX talking about their flex futures where you can just trade a future to any date if you can find, if you can find the, you know, the liquidity provider. Um, we had the clearing. And then we said, well, yeah, the clearing, yeah, but there's not a massive push for clearing. Um, and then, as you wrote about um, two weeks ago, just over, you've got 360T really being the first platform to break cover and say, look, we're ready to go with you know a limit order book, and it was interesting actually because um, on both uh, sessions, um, the speaker from 360T, Simon Jones, was was quite keen to stress it's not a central limit order book, it's a limit order book, and, okay. and there's, 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 there's 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 subtle differences between the two, um, which I think he goes into in your in your article anyway. Um, yeah, my overall takeaway was though that. Um, I'm still not sure there's the will to push form to push sorry push forward and push through reform of the FX swaps market and greater automations. It just really it just reminds me of everyone sort of running around going, we've got great ideas, but no one's gathering critical mass. Um, and that kind of bothered me a little bit. And then it was reinforced by a point made by one of our speakers in Frankfurt who made the excellent point and said, what you need to understand about the FX swaps market is for clients, it's not broken. It doesn't need fixing. They have all the liquidity they need in whatever date they need, in whatever currency pair they need. The so what we're trying to fix here is actually something is for the, yeah, the inter-dealer market. Um, and frankly, at the moment, within the banks, it's still the case that you're like, so this isn't client-facing? Why would we want to spend money on this? And and that kind of left me thinking, actually, maybe this will take, yet again, maybe this will take longer than, than we actually thought to get this thing done. Um, I think the key will be the success or otherwise of 360T's initiative. I also hear that, you know, as we said a few weeks ago, there's three or four other players ready to come piling through the door. Um, obviously, Refinitiv already has a solution. And... Um, I guess it's interesting that 360T have launched their version ahead of what most people expect to be a merger of the or takeover of the firm. Um, yeah, so yeah, I guess that was my other key takeaway was from the conferences that the FX there is a, there is a desire to reform the FX swap market, but there's no consensus on how we're going to do it, and there's potentially a lack of appetite to do it on the part of the banks because what they're actually doing is providing something for themselves. Um, if you held a gun to my head, I would say that in two years' time, we will see a radically different FX swaps market. But I don't think it will be in the coming year the way the way we maybe thought it would have been. So, One for the uh, 2021 predictions, Colin. Oh, so I'm all over it, mate. I'm already writing it. I'm just, I mean, I, I, frankly, you should just give me 10 out of 10 for everyone. I'm going to write for 2021. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, that's us for this week. Um, I'm going to go and lie down in a darkened room and actually enjoy laying in my own bed for the first time in six weeks. 
And I realise that's not an image that any of you wanted to end this podcast with, but I apologise <laughs> for that. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, what I might do is try and find the highlights of the Champions League so I can catch up on what I missed all week. To have been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, thanks very much for listening. We'll be back next week. Um, feedback, as always, uh, very welcome. And uh, thanks again. Speak soon.